the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to nonprofits. If 2020 has taught us anything, it is that it is a good idea to have a backup plan. Uh, and our line of credit program is easy, fast, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for nonprofits. If you would like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Lori Herrick from Rainmaker Consulting. Lori has worked in the not-for-profit sector for over 20 years, serving in numerous professional and volunteer roles. She feels that fundraising and building a culture of philanthropy is uh, sacred, transformative work. Not only is it meaningful, but it can alter the trajectory of an organization. Lori started Rainmaker Consulting in 2003 because she saw that many organizations were lacking buy-in for fund development. The lessons and best practices gained through her consulting and teaching has led to her upcoming book, Choose Abundance, an organizational guide to build a culture of philanthropy. Lori, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I'm a big fan of building cultures inside of a company or inside of a nonprofit. I think that culture is probably one of is the most important thing that a a um, executive director or a business owner should be focusing in on. So when you talked about choose abundance, how to build a culture of philanthropy as our topic today, um, I I was ex- I'm really excited to hear about it because I certainly have heard about culture inside of a company, but I haven't talked much about the culture inside of a not for profit. So you know, tell me how you kind of came to this uh, idea that you wanted to talk about culture uh, inside of a nonprofit. Sure. Well, I have to say I started in the poor in the for profit world as well. I was a business owner. And I was doing that as a late 20-something and finding that I was really sad that I wasn't working in the not-for-profit world because I um, volunteered a lot and I was, I was really wanting to do more meaningful work. And I volunteered quite a bit at the time for an organization called Results. Results is a grassroots citizens lobby. It teaches people how to advocate on behalf of people living in poverty. And um, I would go to my regional conferences as a volunteer, and I'd be really bummed that I wasn't working there. So I was really a salesperson in my world. And I kept thinking, why am I not selling something more meaningful like the end of hunger? And when the opportunity came along, I decided to not be a business owner and instead go be a development person. And I got hired by results to be their grassroots fundraiser. 
And um, at first it was great. I did really well in the beginning. Um, but after a while, I was having some challenges reaching my goals. And my boss came to me and said, we got a problem, Lori. If you, we don't hit $40,000 raised by the end of this year, you should tell me who we should fire. And I was like, oh gosh, this is maybe I'm not made for this field, right? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, but she encouraged me when uh, I, you know, to just go do it, see what I could do. And I had a couple of donors in mind. And I went to one of them, and he was my easiest. And I asked for $10,000, and he said, no. I was, well, I was pretty devastated and I got off the phone and I cried, which no development person is supposed to do, right? There's no crying in development. But um, when I went back to my boss and said, look, I just blew my best chance at this with one person. I don't know what to do. She suggested I get some coaching and some training. And to call, I don't know if you've heard of her, but um, a woman by the name of Lynn Twist, she's the author of a book called The Soul of Money. It's a great book. I recommend it. Um, Lynn came in and she, uh, provided a training for board members and for staff and myself, a group of us. And it was awesome, but I had a pivotal moment and this is, a, you know, it's a long way of getting to your answer, but really it's what had me see things completely differently within my work. Um, in that training, I raised my hand at a certain point and I said, I heard about an organization that got a million dollar donor. We should have a million dollar donor. And she asked me if I was willing to take a stand for a million dollar donor. And I, of course, started backpedaling thinking, I can't raise $40,000. How am I going to raise a million dollars, right? And she said, Lori, what you need to do is take a stand for it. When you take a stand, you essentially throw your hat over the fence. When you go throw your hat over the fence, you got to crawl over the fence to get it. So that was, that was cool. And then she said, second thing is you need to find somebody who believes in what you're doing and who's a committed listener and who will say, yes, we can do this. And so I thought immediately of my friend Peter. And Peter and I were volunteers together, had been volunteers together, and we would run together when we'd see each other at conferences. And he became the person who said, yes, we can do it. And so that's um, where it all began. And we started talking about what was possible if we could get a million dollars. And we had fits and starts and thought we would find that elusive rich person who was going to save the organization and it would go nowhere. Until one day when we got together to run and I could tell he was bursting. He was so excited about something. And I thought, okay, he's found our savior. And he looked at me and he kind of shook his head no. And I thought, what? And he said, I'm your million dollar donor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the beginning of me understanding something really core. So I learned a whole bunch of lessons in that first two things that Lynn had taught me, throw your hat over the fence, right? And, and, you know, and find a committed listener. But what had happened for me was that I had shifted my mindset from it's impossible and I should, you know, go bury my head in the sand and run away to it's possible. And I also, um, Peter had a similar epiphany, and that was that he got more and more involved in the organization and had a new level of being a stakeholder. And he suddenly saw himself as um, somebody different and somebody who was capable of doing this. And he had never made anywhere near that size of a gift or pledge. He committed to $100,000 a year for the next 10 years. Um, 
So that was the beginning of me understanding how critical mindset is. And then that fits into culture. But I haven't given you a chance to speak. So go ahead and ask any questions. No, no. It was, it's, you know, it's, it's always it's, – what's fascinating in that story is, um, I mean, hearing you talk today, um, I, I'm a little bit surprised that you weren't good at, you know, a culture in yourself, uh, so to speak. And let's define what culture means. The culture to a company or to a nonprofit means personality. And person and a culture is defined inside of a nonprofit or inside of an, a uh, a business, usually by the owner, whoever started the company or the, the people who started the organization. You know their personalities will rot. It's amazing how this happens, but it will it'll transcend always down the line to all the people that you hire. And, you know, and hopefully you're hiring the right type of people who fit into that personality of the culture that you want or the personality. So, so if you, so an example would be is if your executive director and your board is really, really into, you know, good at raising money, well, everybody in the organization will tend to be that way. But if everybody, if your executive director and your board is really good at providing a service, um, you know, in other words, helping people, helping their cause, you know, really good on that side, which is really where m- most nonprofits are good at. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you, then, the, then the people that work at your organization are going to be that way as well. So what, you know, what you're talking about is kind of, you know, either improving or creating a culture within a nonprofit that is is used to fundraising, used to getting, uh, asking for, for money and that type of thing, correct? Well, yes, for sure. What we want to do is shift the culture to one where fund, funding abundance is a possibility. And so I talk about culture a little differently than you, although I think that They are completely overlapping in certain ways. But I talk about um, if you want to make culture change, you need to affect the behaviors, the structures, and also the hearts and minds or the mindset. And when I look at typical fundraising trainings that are available to different organizations, they are mostly in the behaviors and the structures But for example, if you hire a development director, everybody says, yes, let's, we, we care about development. Let's hire a development director. We've never had one before. We're going to do this. But everybody thinks that fundraising is an evil necessity or their mindset is such that they just think this is impossible. Then it's not really going to go anywhere. And to go back to Lynn Twist for a minute, she has a chapter in her book that refers to the myth of scarcity. And she makes a case for, and I believe it to be very true, that in our culture, we have a culture of scarcity, that we have advertising and messages in the news. And especially during the pandemic, that's all elevated to another screeching level where that's saying, we're not enough. There are things to be afraid of. You need more and a lot of it is born out of marketing, right? Making it so that people believe that there are 
they don't have they must have that thing right in order to be happy or they must re uh, redo their kitchen or they must have that fancy car or they must have that sexy body or whatever it is. So we're constantly reminded that we're not enough and that we don't have enough. Well, that translates into not-for-profit organizations as well. So when you talk about the board, it's not uncommon to hear things from board members like, I don't really know anybody that has money or I don't want to ask. Let me do anything, but don't make me ask. Um, and there are executive directors and there are development people even who are afraid of asking for money or for engaging this way. And so part of what we like to do is help people to unpack the degree to which there is scarcity thinking in their organization. And for sure, going back to your um, assertion around personality, if the leadership isn't on board it's not going to happen. So I would agree completely that without the personality and the buy-in of the top executives or the top board members, um, you're not going to. It's not going to fly. Uh, but I do believe that it's possible to shift because once you start to become aware of the scarcity language, it doesn't have the same hold on you. And that's a problem in culture is that if you're not paying attention to the culture, then it's got you. It's like you're in the dirty fishbowl and you don't even know it, right? But once you start to realize it's pretty cloudy in here, we need to unpack this and take a look at what this is about. And then you get to make a shift. And that's what we found to be really powerful with a number of the organizations that we've worked with. We get new, multiple people around the table to agree to change their language and to change how they've been doing things, not just the to-dos, but the mindset as well as the actions and the structures. Yeah, I would think too that even if you do bring in someone who you you delegate the fundraising to, that if the rest of the organization, the board, the executive director, the people who work there, are not really uh, – of a fundraising mindset, it, it really makes the job hard. Totally. As well. Totally. The, the, there was a report that came out um, from the Haas Fund uh, and Compass Point called Underdeveloped. It came out, I believe it was 2014. And they talk about the failure of development being successful. And I read this report and through most of it, I was totally depressed. And then there was I, the shining light in the end. But they said, development people are lasting about 18 months. They feel no support from their executive director. They feel undersupported by their board. They feel really out on the skinny branches all by themselves. Um, and what's missing is a culture of philanthropy. And I, and I was like, yay, <laughs> somebody's addressing it, you know, at last. Yeah. And I was thrilled to see that they saw that as the, the missing thing. We had been calling it, uh, a, we didn't even call it a culture of philanthropy. We had something like, oh, we was, said, we want a culture of true abundance is what we were saying. Because we didn't really have that distinction yet of what, a, what is a culture of philanthropy. But what I noticed was that very often people will talk about it broadly, but they don't train in making culture change because culture change takes time. It takes a long time. And so that's a key piece of what needs to happen. But that Haas report validates exactly what you said, that development people don't stay. The, donor, the retention of donors generally stinks. 
because there's not a whole infrastructure and a belief in relationship building. It's much more transactional and not as meaningful or transformational in the experience of the donors or in in the experience of the entire organization. Let's face it. If you don't have good fundraising, um, your organization's not going to be around very long. Absolutely. You know, and or it's going to stay super small, and it's you know, it's also it's not going to stand the test of time. So, you know, if your culture of your nonprofit is not fundraising oriented already, if you don't take it serious about making that change, regardless of the steps that are are going to be involved, you know, it's you're 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 in doomsday scenario. Absolutely. And yeah, and so tell me about. Uh, Give me a case scenario. The listeners that are listening today, you know, again, they're they're smaller nonprofits. Let's say you're you you know if you're not a your your nonprofit does not have a culture of of, of fundraising or f- philanthropy, um, and um, you know if I'm saying that right, because uh, you know, but you know, so it's a, a culture of you know going out there getting funds like that. So. Tell me a case study where you had a smaller client who completely changed themselves and became the poster board for what you're what you're proposing. Sure. So um, there are a couple that come to mind, but I, so I, I could tell you one that has sort of interim steps, and then I could give you one which I think I would prefer to do, which is a little bit more of a, a medium sized organization, not a giant organization, um, but because they had the staff that made a difference. So I worked with, um, I'm still working with, frankly, an organization um, out of uh, Milwaukee. It's their Jewish Community Center. And they, a number of years ago, had someone come in to do a training on how to ask. And they were to do, they did this training with the board. And so how do we go ask for money? And they had a lovely two-day training. It was excellent. They were thrilled with how it went. And afterwards, nobody was really doing anything. They just didn't take it on. So the executive director said, huh, you know, what's going on? What's wrong with this? And, and he started to look at it. And I had been teaching a course with, uh, with some of his development staff. He had um, two development staff at that time. And I was teaching a course with them about a culture of philanthropy. As a matter of fact, that's how I started doing this with, was just with development people. But then we saw this isn't really spreading throughout the organization. We need bigger buy-in. So, so I started to talk with him about this and he said, I think maybe we should have you come in and help us talk about the culture. So we did. And it started to make a big difference, both for the, the, uh, board members that were there, but also the development people started to have a bigger partnership. A big shift happened when we, I, with actually the coaching of this executive director, I said, I feel like I'd like to make this course available that I do just for development people for a whole team, because that's what's missing. And this Haas report just validated everything I knew that we needed to have multiple people at the table in development. So we decided he actually worked with me to help create this course. Um, his name is Mark Shapiro. He's fantastic. And we together put, put in place what would it be like to have a course where an executive director would show up, a development director would show up, and board members would show up. 
So we put it together as a team and they, and we all looked at what are the things we need to do to first identify what our true culture is and where we have a culture of philanthropy and where we don't. Like, what's the current reality? And they were pretty good in certain areas, for sure. And there were other areas that they were not so strong, right? So they started to look at what could we do for the board? And this is just one particular piece of it. But the person um, named Nancy, who was on their board, who, was, who decided to be part of this team, um, and part of this course that we were doing for a pilot, actually, a couple of years ago, um, she said, we should have a culture of philanthropy committee, but maybe we start with a task force. And what they did was they said, okay, we need to get buy-in. And so how do we not just have it be that we went off into this workshop, but how do we get everybody to see the value of this and, and really dig into what it would look like for our board to really embrace a culture of philanthropy. So they started to um, have at every board meeting a report of the task force where they would teach about it and have people see that there are multiple ways that they could be involved in development. It's not just about asking, that they could be part of making some phone calls and thank people afterwards, or they could show up at particular community events that they had going on and that they could share their love for their organization and use that as a way to really um, express their commitment to the organization. A big piece of it was to identify what individuals that were part of their core, not just their core team, but starting with their core team and then expanding to their, all of their staff and their whole board was to find what each one of them could contribute to development. So it's not just about asking. It's about um, showing up at an event and, and speaking passionately about why the organization matters to you. It's about um, being out on a tour with somebody and realizing that even though your job isn't development, that you have uh, the potential to foster a relationship and learn more about somebody and report that back to development and start to build something with them over time. So the, the process of each person finding their unique role, instead of trying to pigeonhole everybody into having to be the asker or the go bring your friends to this particular event, which is something that typically falls flat when people are asked to do that. Um, kind of a cool culminating moment um, was that there was some new staff that just came on there um, recently and the, the chief development officer came to me and said, um, I, I'd love it if we, you could help me train this new, this new staff person. And I, uh, I, I said, sure. And then I said, why don't you co-lead it with me? Let's get you leading as well. And she said, oh, cool. I could do that. Fine. So she decided to start working with it. And I said, why don't we invite other staff? Why don't we get everybody there? And so we did. We ended up having about 40 people. So obviously medium-sized organization, not a giant one, but it was a, so we got, had three weeks in a row that we did a one-hour training. And in the first week, I had them do an exercise, which by the way, I invite anybody who's listening to do this. Um, and the exercise was to spend in the next week being a, um, a scarcity detective, to start noticing where you hear scarcity language and thinking in your organization. And 
you get bonus points if you notice it in your own head and articulate it. <laughs> and so we came back a week later and this woman who worked in their, um, their, uh, I think it's a child care program that they have. Um, uh, I'm not sure what the name of it is, but anyway, a daycare program that they have there. And she came back and she said, um, oh my gosh, I walked out of the training the first time and thought, why am I having to do this? This is not my job. And then she went, bing, bing, bing. <laughs> There's my scarcity thinking. <laughs> right? And so she said, it's easy enough for me to talk to parents as they come in. It's easy enough for me to get to know families. This is what I love to do. Why would this be a problem? Yeah, it just seems like to me like, um, you know, you just need to talk about this a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and I was wondering in the book that you have, I, I don't, is, is, is the book out you have now? It is. It will be out within the next two months. It, it's okay. awfully close. So, so would somebody be able to pick up that? Because I think was one of the things that you're talking about is – is um you know like like I just said you you, you kind of got to talk about this stuff a lot and sometimes if you have some ideas and suggestions and how you introduce this topic over and over and over again people will find their own way yes yes and so so it, so is your book does does it cover a lot of these things absolutely yeah what we do is th there are different things that people could take on that address the hearts and minds, sh shifting your mindset, right? Just like the woman that I just described, or putting in a new structure. We're going to have at every board meeting, a culture of philanthropy minute, right? We're going to educate people every time. That's a structural example. Um, or a behavior, which is the executive director is going to be meeting with development every week and taking on her own portfolio, of major donors, for example. So there are all sorts of examples of things that individuals can do. So anybody could pick it up and say, yeah, I'm a board member. What might I do? And how might I make a difference with, within my role? But the other thing is, and this is what I think is particularly unique, is what could we do as a team to totally transform the culture of our organization? Yeah, that well, you know, the thing about changing a culture is that it does take time. Yes. Right? Yes. But you know, I think a lot of uh, newer uh, organizations don't even realize what their culture is right now. You know, like you know, sometimes uh, I'll you know ask you know, so tell me a little bit about the culture of the organization, and they don't they don't they don't know. You know, and I understand it. I get it. You know, um, but that's the first thing I think you have to understand. Well, what is the culture of our organization right now? That's right. For sure. And then, you know, and then, hey, maybe you'd be lucky enough that you do have a fundraising co culture already. Yeah. But I have to say, I, I serve on a board and there's a fundraising culture and it's not unusual for it to be limited to the group of people that. Right are receptive to that. And other people feel they were brought onto the board for other reasons. And that's natural. That's typically what I think happens. There are exceptions for sure. Organizations that really are built on, 
on fundraising and are extremely successful in doing that. But I think what's more common, especially for the smaller and medium-sized not-for-profit organizations, is that people are there because they love the cause primarily. Yeah. And, and that's great. That's what distinguishes this work, right? That, that we're very passionate about it and we care about it. But there are plenty of founders who are frankly in the way of the success of their organization because they have the belief that money is bad or fundraising is bad or that um, they don't know how and that it's somebody else's job. And that's the type of mindset that could stop them from having success. And if they're doing that from the top, and by the way, there's a big section for the executive directors, because to your point that you made right in the beginning, their leadership and their personality and their beliefs around this are are imperative to building a culture of philanthropy. And for sure, if they're um, not learners, and I heard, I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier today where we were talking about the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Um, Dr. Carol Dreck's distinction that I think is very, very useful. In our course, when we teach this, we address that you've got to be open to learning. And one of the organizations that I'm most proud of, actually, one of their top executives came to me recently and he said, I'm not sure the degree to which I might be in the way of a culture of philanthropy. And I, I was just so impressed with his willingness to be vulnerable and open and consider that possibility. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I, um, you know, let's face it. Sometimes you could have a culture of, of fundraising, but the people are thinking in, in thousands of dollars and you have to, you know, change that culture to people thinking in the, hundreds of thousands of dollars and then millions of dollars. So, you know, I think your example early on, uh, the way you were challenged to, you know, think differently about what you're looking for as far as the million dollar donor, um, you know, ex exemplifies a little bit more about that change in culture as well, even amongst yourself. Yes. And I would actually throw a, a counterspin to that as well, which is you never know what people could give. We have a client that uh, that my colleague did a culture philanthropy training with them, and they're a nature center. And they talked about with the staff and with the board how everyone has a role in development and what could that be. Several months later, they were doing a, uh, a canoe workshop, canoe making workshop, bark canoe something another. Sorry, I don't know what that was exactly. But yeah. in that, there was a staff person there who all of a sudden had my colleague David on her you know, shoulder saying, oh, get to know these folks that are here during this workshop. And she started talking to someone who became very interested in learning more about the organization. He had shown up because he was interested in canoes. And as a result of that, she started to learn that he was an architect. And when she said that they were talking about building a new wilderness center, or, or, you know, he perked up and he said, really, what are you thinking about? And he and his wife contributed all of the services, several thousand dollars worth of architectural services for their new plan and are making a major gift on top of it. And so I believe that every contribution of service, of objects or of money is 
is a part of, and not just a part of, but is recognized as philanthropy within the organization. So it might be somebody being a microbrewer that says, I'm willing to host people coming, you know, to, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll host a little party and have my beer and you can bring your top donors over. So it, you never know what people can bring to the party, including the staff, including the board members, and it's all valuable, not just those mega gifts. Yeah, you know, I uh, I'll tell this one story. It's 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 uh, it just goes to show you how you can just start real small and how it builds. I I have a twenty year old son, and uh, he's he um, was going for uh, uh, he was trying to get some internships. And for the last uh, couple of years, um, I've got I had gotten him internships. Um, he's actually, he actually has had six internships and yeah. And that's unusual for a 20 year old kid. Right. Um, and so the first three, I had gotten him his internships for him. And then the next on the, on the, after that, I, uh, had said, all right, Mike, uh, now you need to get your own internship. And he's like, well, how, how do I do that? And I said, uh, well, this is what you need to do. You need to go and you need to ask everybody, you know, and ask all of your friends, uh, uh, friends of mine, friends of your mothers, um, and your teachers, and everybody you can think of, if they know of anybody who works at a, a company in computer science and computers, um, uh, who might be willing to bring you on as an intern. And he went out and he did that, and he, you know, he kept doing it. He kept going at it, and sure enough, he got an internship. And now I don't even have to get him positions anymore. He does that networking on his own, and so it's just, you know, the the, the sometimes it's just the first couple steps that you make, yep. which trans gives somebody who maybe has the skill set already, but just doesn't know where to start. You know, honestly, Lori, I think you know, other than reading the book, I mean let's face it, I think bringing you on board to kind of teach and walk everybody through the steps can help improve the the pace at which an organization can build a culture of philanthropy as well, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And we have a course that is starting a new session uh, in February, and it's teams of people coming together and have – so there's peer learning – it's a seven month long course where we have three intensives where we get together and learn from each other and learn about what a culture of philanthropy is and, and create a plan. And so when people go back to their offices, so to speak, now it's all virtual, but when you go back to your office, then you are together working on implementing your own plan, then gathering back together again learning from each other. And in between those intensives, we provide monthly coaching calls, once a month, a, a call where we help groups to implement their plan. So it's very different from most typical classrooms where you learn the information, then you're just sort of on your own yeah. trying to do it. Yeah. So um, our course is called Sculpt. And it's uh, it's really designed for peer learning and it's only for teams. It's not for individuals because we're really committed to making this marked change within an organization. So exec an executive has to be a part of it, a board member and development. 
And uh, we're making some exception for staff that don't have or organizations that don't have a full-time development person. But uh, we want teams of three to six people. And it's the same price whether you have three or six. So we've set it up to be a, a good win for the organizations that are part of it. That's great. You know, I have a lot of uh, – we've had a lot of uh, nonprofit consultants on the Nonprofit MBA podcast. And, um, you know, usually they're involved in training or working with one person, I think this is the first time I've heard. Now that maybe they just didn't bring it up into the the podcast that we talked about, but I, I love your idea of, of working with a team because, especially because they can all maybe if one person gets it and the other one doesn't, it you know the one person can kind of really help the others, you know, come up with uh, implementation of the ideas that you're talking about. Yes. So uh, it's good stuff. So you know, unfortunately, you know. We're out of time, but you know, I really love the ideas that you came up with today, Lori. And you know, thank you for coming on 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 board today. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate being here. It's exciting to be able to talk about, and I loved hearing your insights on it as well. So, thanks for your time, and um, I hope people feel free to reach out if they're interested in learning more. Yep. And so again, we were speaking with Lori Herrick from Rainmaking Consulting. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. The Nonprofit MBA podcast has become very, very popular. I'm very proud of the work that we're doing here. I have great guests like Lori on who are just really providing some great insight. And, um, you know, let's face it, we all need our not the nonprofits to, to be great at what they do. I mean, the, the world needs you. So keep going at it. If And, you know, please tell your friends about the Nonprofit MBA podcast, get the word out, uh, you know, give us a review, uh, uh, please. Only if it's good, if it's bad, then call me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Lori, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they reach you? They can reach me uh, by going to our website, which is www.rain mkr.com. So it's maker without the vowels or Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E at R-A-I-N-M-K-R.com. Very good. All good stuff. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Looking forward to your book that's coming out as well. Thank so you. Um, I want to thank everybody who's listening today. And of course, um, thank you for making the world a better place. We're coming to the end of a terrible 2020 uh, and I think we're all happy when it's this, this year is going to leave us and we can start fresh. That's why I love New Year's. You can always f- start something fresh over and uh, forget what you've done in the past. And if you did, if you had a good year, then you could say thanks for having a good year and move on for the next year. So everybody have a great day. Say, stay, say, stay safe with you and your family. And, um, you know, we look forward to you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.